0: All right, my friends, I invite you to find a seat. And this is Pastor Chuck. He's the pastor Family Ministries Good here at Grace. Good evening. I'm Nathan, and we're in this series that we're calling You Ask For It. And people have texted in various questions, and Pastor Chuck and I are addressing the questions that you asked. But the purpose of this is not to make us the Bible answer guys. We don't want to be that. Uh, we want you to be the Bible answer people. And that's the purpose of this series is to... Uh, show you or open up God 's word a little bit more, for you to see that the Bible is applicable to lots of parts of our life. The Bible is more than just a ticket to heaven. The Bible is more than just uh, the way of salvation. And there are many principles in it that apply to so many parts of our lives that it is a source where we can live our lives honoring to Jesus Christ in all aspects, or many aspects of our lives, not only the salvation aspect. And so hopefully that's what you're beginning to see is that the Bible has so many principles that you can apply. And so we're not getting to each verse and parsing every verb. We want you to take the verses that we give you. Hopefully you're taking notes and writing them down. And you can go home and you can look at all the detail, and you and your spouse, if you're married, you guys can come to a conclusion on how you're going to apply some of these principles that we're talking about uh, in your life. And so that's the purpose. That's what Pastor Chuck and I and Pastor John this morning prayed about. We pray for you every single morning, and this morning we prayed that tonight would accomplish our purpose of opening the Bible a little bit wider so that you could see the the implications of it in every part of your life, not just the salvation part of life. Uh, but With that said, let's open in prayer, and we're going to jump right in tonight. Dear God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for you revealing more than just the bare essentials to us. You reveal so much to us about your will and your ways, and uh, we thank you for that. And so we pray that you would help us understand you and your word a little better, and may our hearts uh, uh, cave to yours. Um, May our minds bend to your mind in these areas that we are talking about tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Chuck gets the first question for the evening, and that is, when the salvation call or the sinner's prayer is made, how come the congregation is told to make a silent prayer rather than a verbal confession of
1: faith? Well, this question kind of comes with the idea uh, that one must kind of hold to a specific outward type of action, verbal confession, uh, as part of being saved. And this belief is teetering on works-based salvation. It comes from a, a misinterpretation of Romans 10 9 and 10 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation so there are those that actually interpret this verse that salvation is kind of a two-step process to believe in your heart and to have a a verbal confession outwardly with with your mouth with your lips that jesus is lord of your life to interpret it this way one would have to actually ignore really all what the apostle paul is saying in the whole book of romans the whole letter is centered around a theme about god's grace that's being freely poured out uh to both jew and gentile and here's just a couple of examples All right, Romans 3.20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So here he says, the law of God, or the rules and regulations from which God gave the nation of Israel, it was never a means to justify them. And uh, it was actually to be used as kind of a spiritual mirror to look down deep into their heart and their soul to see that the inability to actually write themselves with their own actions and that God's law had one purpose, and that was to be a tutor, a schoolmaster, to be able to s- see a need for a Savior. And so Romans 3.24 is another example, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So again, our justification is uh, being redeemed being bought back to god only through the one way it's always been this way from this beginning of adam and eve in the garden when they first sinned it's been an unconditional free gift uh, an unmerited favor his grace through christ death for our sins and so paul says again in in romans 328 for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law Our salvation has never been connected or has never been uh, assisted by an outward physical action of obedience to the law. In Romans 4, 16, Paul said, For this reason, salvation is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all. The reason that our salvation is by faith alone is because Paul says that to associate our salvation with any kind of work or action makes our faith useless. That's what he says. and It actually nullifies God's promise of the gift of grace. So to answer our question, why the salvation call doesn't include a verbal confession, it's because if we attach that to it and require it, it's making our faith useless. It, It actually nullifying God's promise of grace. I'm sure you're probably thinking, okay, so then here's the question now. What is Romans 10 9 and 10 actually saying then? And when it says, confessing with your mouth and resulting in salvation. He's saying that our faith, our belief in trust, or however you want to say it, faith, belief, trust, receive, it's always inward. It comes from inside. It's from our heart and our mind Okay, and it's the inner part of our soul to claim Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. The change of heart believes Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what that is talking about. When we say Lord, he's God in the flesh. He is the anointed one. He is the one who takes away our sins by his death on the cross. And so it's this inward heart change that actually results in an outward physical display of professing Jesus with my mouth. We know that because of the context of those, those verses, but also because of verse 8 that precedes 9 and 10, because it's a direct quote from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And I'm just going to read it, Romans 10, 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. This is the word of faith which you are preaching. Paul is talking to Jews here, and he is saying, because God chose you as his nation, the written word of God is, is just that close to you. It's near to you. That, that word of faith is so near to you that it's, it's like on your mouth. It's on your tongue. It's in your heart. It's there. And so then he repeats in verse 9 what we already read, this word of faith that's coming from Deuteronomy And he's speaking to a Jew in that particular verse 9 about Jesus being Lord. You know, if a Jew mentions that Jesus is Lord, that means he is saying that Jesus is God. Lord meant supreme being. And anyone calling Jesus Lord originates from the heart, a heart of believing, as Paul confirms in 1 Corinthians 12.3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So what does Paul say as a prerequisite to actually a verbal uh, confession of of Jesus as Lord? That someone has the the Holy Spirit in them. And so what's the prerequisite of having the Holy Spirit in you? is to believe in Jesus as Lord. In verse 10, Paul just kind of reorders the Old Testament, quote, in Deuteronomy 30, 14, and he says, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So to kind of sum all this up, why is it not necessary to include a, a verbal confession in our salvation? Because it means we're attaching works to grace. And to professing with our mouth Jesus as Lord is a is, is result of an inward belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior.
0: I know the Bible says submit to the government, but what if the government is diverting further and further from God? Have you noticed that happening? (laughs) Three principles. There are a lot, but we're going to just stick with three principles. Principle number one is Matthew 5.13. Matthew 5.13 is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he calls Christians salt, salt and light, but we're going to focus on the salt aspect in that Salt is a preservative, and it adds some flavor. That is what salt does. And so the principle in Matthew 5.13 is that Christians, you and me, we are God's way to preserve the world, both Christians and non-Christians, from going down the toilet pole of moral depravity. That's what Christians are. That is one of our roles as believers on planet Earth, is to be a preservative of morality in, in the world. And so uh, apply that principle to our access to the government. And this question is all about civil obedience, our, our interaction with the government. And so if you have the ability to vote, well, vote. Vote biblically. Don't vote your conscience. Sometimes your conscience is, it does not fit with Scripture. <laughs> vote biblically. If you have that freedom as a Christian, then go for it. But there are millions of Christians that don't have that freedom. In the New Testament, the Christians in Rome, did not they were not voting for anybody, and yet they were still the moral preservative. So when they went to their job, or maybe they worked at the post office, or maybe they were a bus driver, or a police officer, or whatever it is, in all of those places, Christians are a moral preservative. There's going to be a coming time when Christians are going to be taken off of planet Earth, (laughs) and we see what happens to the world when Christians aren't there uh, in that tribulation time. And so principle number one, Matthew five thirteen, the Christians are salt, we're a moral preservative. And so that certainly applies to our interaction with the government as well and our voting and those kinds of things. Principle number two, Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read those two verses, but let me just state the principle and then you can see it woven into the scripture here. Christians submit to the government, even if, even if. All right, here's what it says. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So our mayor was put there by God? I guess so. Our governor, put there by God? I guess so. Our president, put there by God? I guess so. So it says, therefore, whoever resists this authority... Has opposed the ordinances of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So Christians submit to the government, even if you don't like their laws, even if you don't think it's fair, even if you didn't vote for them, even if you uh, checked yes on that proposal and everybody else voted no, or whatever it is, you submit to the law of the land, even, even if. And then the third principle that we're going to talk about today is 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, where it says that Christians pray for their government. Christians pray for those who are in authority over them. And so back to this question, I know the Bible says submit to the government, but what if the government is diverting further and further from God? Well, you pray for them even more, and you submit to them even more, and you become even more saltier in that place. Now, I get it, you know, you might say, well, what if the government forces me or makes me do something that is against God's word? Well, then don't do that. Um, Don't do that. But I have never met a Christian in Riverside ever tell me, you know, the Riverside City Council told me that if I don't get drunk, I'm getting the chair. No one has ever told that to me. No pregnant woman has ever called Pastor Chuck or I on the phone and said, you know, President Trump called me on the phone and said that if I don't get an abortion, I'm going to get the death penalty. I've never heard of that happening. I've never heard of Governor Newsom telling anybody if they don't get a divorce, they're going to jail. Now, if he does, then you say, I'm not going to do that. That's what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, they were in that spot. They were told to worship the thing, and they weren't going to worship the thing because that was against God. And so they got the chair, you know, I mean, for capital punishment in in that era was the fiery furnace, and so they got it. And if it wasn't for God's miracle there, they really would have fried in that spot. But they followed everything else. They were actually leaders in the government of Nebuchadnezzar at the time, even though they were believers, because they were doing this. They were submitting to the government, even though they didn't agree with everything that he did. Now, the government allows for a lot of stuff. The government allows for divorce. I don't think that's healthy for anybody. The government allows for drunkenness. I don't think that's good or healthy for anyone. The government allows for those things. And obviously, I wouldn't vote for those things. And so we submit to the government up until they force us to do something that's beyond Scripture. But I've never met anyone that's gone to that spot. Now, maybe you have, um, but I've never met them. And so that's what we do. We pray for them even more when it gets harder. Uh, We do know the end. We we know the end, right? The end back here says it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And so if it's getting worse and worse and worse, all right, right, we we just see it playing out in front of us. We pray for them, and we know God put them there for whatever reason, and we submit to them, and we are salty at the same time. We, we are preservative in whatever influence we have. All right? Let's move on to the next one. Pastor, why does Grace, Grace Community Church, baptize by dunking three times forward instead of one time backwards? That's a good one.
1: Um, let me start by just answering this question by uh, stating first um, what Christian baptism is. Okay? It, Christian baptism is symbolic. It's what happens to a Christian when they put their faith in Jesus. Someone who puts their faith in Jesus as Lord of their life and Savior from their sin, the Bible says that God washes away their sin. And so baptism is symbolic of that, meaning that the the water in itself has actually no powers to wash away sin. It's just symbolic. Secondly... Why are Christians to get baptized? Well, because Jesus commanded all Christians to get baptized as the first step of obedience when you become a follower of Christ. Matthew 28 19, Jesus came up and spoke to them, the apostles, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. And let me just stop right there for now. So, with all authority given to Jesus by the Father, he mandates the apostles, who are actually the the known church at that time, to make disciples or followers of Christ by first baptizing them, baptizing believers. His commandment here is is an outward public profession of all who put their faith in him as Lord and Savior. All right, so... Uh, So baptism is is symbolic of Jesus washing away our sin. Okay, that's what it's at. And then baptism is a command by Jesus as a first step of obedience. Now let's read the rest of that, Matthew 28, 19. I'll start with the beginning. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus not only commands... All believers to be baptized, but he also tells them right here, what I just read, the method of Christian baptism, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We know that God is one, Deuteronomy 6.4. He's made up of three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who unites us, the Spirit unites us in fellowship, Course, God the Father loves us, and the Son was poured out as an offering for us. That's His grace. And that's all talked about in 2 Corinthians 13 14. So, God is one, and He's in three persons. And so, Jesus gives us a method of water baptism to symbolically show how a believer is saved. In the name of the Father, who is the sender, and then the name of the Son, who is the comer, and then the Holy Spirit. Who is the sealer? Uh, Matthew 28, 19 gives really the only method of Christian baptism found throughout the New Testament. There is not another one. Uh, The word baptize or baptized, past tense, or baptizing or baptism, they're all spread out through all the the New Testament, 90-some times. I counted it up. 91 times that word is used. And it's translated in all ways to mean immerse. But depending on its context of how it is used, it could mean to immerse in Christ. It could mean to immerse in Jesus' death, or to immerse in the Holy Spirit, or to immerse in water. And of those 91 times, there's several examples of water baptizing. Um, And it could include a, a Jewish baptism, it could include uh, a John the Baptist, baptism of repentance, and it, there's several examples of a new believer's Christian baptism. But the only method found in the New Testament about Christian water baptism is with this command that we just read in Matthew 28:19. And so this Greek word, baptizo, means to immerse, but the ending portion, the izo part, has a significant meaning to intensify with repeated action. So when put with Jesus' command to baptize in the singular, in the name, meaning one God, with the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's saying to do it three times, to, to immerse three times in each name. Remember, baptism is symbolic. The method from which to be baptized is symbolic of all three persons, of the triune God playing this important role of a believer's salvation. The Father sending the Son, the Son coming to earth to die for our sins, and then, of course, the Holy Spirit then comes and lives within a Christian to give them the power to, to walk the Christian lives. So so why does grace baptize by dunking three times four? Because by the authority of Jesus himself. The Bible tells us to do that. Why not then one time backwards? The place where others get the one time backwards in Romans 6, 3, 4 is not about Christian baptism, water baptism. It, it has to do with something else. In the context of that, it, it's just talking about a believer being freed from sin and not being subject to it anymore, and being that he is spiritually baptized into Christ because he's now being immersed or baptized into Christ's death. And so so you die, and you go backwards, and then you rise a new person. And so that's all true in Romans 6. We believe that as Christians. And so that's why here at Grace we actually accept a one-time backward baptism as being a, a member of Grace Community Church. We'll accept that. That's why we we dunk three times forward, and why we don't do it backwards one time here at Grace. Okay.
0: Thank you, Pastor. Right, the next one. Uh, What are Christian parents to do in regards to myths like Santa, the Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy? Tooth Fairy is real. (laughs) I know the Tooth Fairy is real because I've been the Tooth Fairy for 10 years. So (laughs) it's on my resume. I know the Tooth Fairy is a real thing. I don't have a problem with Santa Claus either. As a matter of fact, Santa Claus is what brought Tanya and I together. That's how we met with Santa Claus. Remember that Tim Allen movie, Santa Claus? Uh, When Tanya and I were in college, a whole group of kind of like oddly connected friends all went to the movies together, and one group went to go see some movie, and another group, I don't know, like 10, went to go see the movie Santa Claus. Santa Claus, the movie got out like 15 minutes before the the other movie, and uh, Tanya happened to be in that Santa Claus group. I didn't know her at the time, but we were waiting in the lobby, just waiting for the other group to get out, and that's where Tanya and I met, and so there it is. So we have a Santa Claus movie. We have it on DVD (laughs) at home right now, and we watch it every year, and our kids know that movie now, too. Did you know you can rearrange the letters of Santa, and it spells Satan? So, obviously, there's a connection there. Um, the Bible does not talk about Santa. The Bible does not talk about the Easter Bunny. The Bible's not anti-Santa or anti-Easter Bunny. The Bible's pro-Jesus, right? That would probably be the best perspective here. And the principle, if we're going to pick a principle out of Scripture, would be Ephesians 6, 4. This principle will cover a lot of parenting issues, but we'll just apply it to this one. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Uh, Kids knowing who Jesus is, kids knowing the, the gospel of Jesus, kids knowing... Uh, His death and burial and resurrection and its impact on them and their need for a Savior because of their own sin, that's priority. That is pro-Jesus. But I don't think you could take this short little verse and say that the Bible says no to Santa. This is liberty. This is freedom. You get to decide what you want to decide as a family in this area. Uh, The way that Tanya and I apply this... What I didn't want to do is I didn't want to say Santa is real, you know, when they're young, you know, Santa's real, Easter Bunny is real, Tooth Fairy is real, Jesus is real. And then sometime later in life, say the Easter Bunny isn't real, Santa isn't real, the Tooth Fairy isn't real, but Jesus, he still really is real. (laughs) I didn't want to do that, and so we had fun with the Easter Bunny and Santa, but they knew even very young that Santa wasn't a real thing. As a matter of fact, Santa was a real guy. He was a godly man way back, but... It's turned into a cartoon character over time. And so my grandparents would put little Santa gifts under the tree for them. But they always knew that, that Christmas is when we celebrate Jesus' birth, God's gift to, to humanity. We'd read the Bible passages on the birth of Jesus. So that's how we've applied that. But you don't have to apply it like that. You, can, you get to decide in this area. Just as a Christian parent, be pro-Jesus in all these areas. Uh, make sure that your kids know the necessity of Jesus and the Jesus impacts of all these days. And if you want to have fun with the two fairy, you are at liberty to make that decision. But if you have a heart conviction not to, um, then then don't. Um, remember, this is heart conviction area. And if, if you aren't feeling that, it, or if you're married and the two of you can't come to an agreement, go with the one that is more sensitive. And if you're the one that has a little bit more freedom, a little more liberality in that area, just submit to your spouse there and so that you're not having them sin against their own heart in this area of celebrating those things. But the Bible is pro-Jesus, not anti-Santa, Easter Bunny, all those kinds of things. Why should I live by the biblical mandate as a wife to allow my husband to be the spiritual head of the
1: home in marriage? There's a real simple, short answer to this one. Uh, you ready? Because it's a biblical mandate? We're done. Okay, let's move on. No, no. Uh, um, Here's the long version. Let me start by just reading the Apostle Paul's perfect example of how a husband and wife relationship should function together. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Um, I'm just going to read through 28. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also... To love their own wives as their own bodies, he who loves his own wife loves himself. I mean, it continues to go on there, but you get the just. And that is, uh, Paul's using the example of of Christ and the church relationship, uh, comparing it to the man and wife. And so the key here, though, is if the husband was to love his wife, as Christ loves the church, I don't think there'd be a wife in here or anywhere that would have any problems submitting to their husband. What wife would object to having her husband giving himself up sacrificially to love her and to set her apart and satisfy every need? I mean, what wife would reject that, right? And what wife would object to submitting to her husband when her husband loves her as he loves his own body. Now, think with me, wives. Okay, um, you know how your husband loves his own body, right? If you know your husband, you've seen it in action, haven't you? Who's the first one he serves? I'm a husband, so I know, okay? It's a natural reaction to serve ourselves. Okay, so you got that picture, right, of how a husband loves his own body? Now, just imagine if he loved you that same way. That's a perfect example, okay? And the Ephesian passage is God's ordained role for the husband, regardless of how the wife submits or respects him. And then the Ephesians passage I just read is God's ordained role for the wife, regardless of how far short the husband falls in regards to being Christ-like or loving his wife like Christ loves the church. Husbands and wives, listen future husbands and wives, the Apostle Paul talks about this interrelational order, or roles, if you will, between God the Father, Jesus, man, and woman. And I'm just going to read this scripture out of First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. It says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of every woman, and God is the head of Christ. So, as Christ is subjected to the authority of his Father, man is subjected to Christ's authority, and then, then woman is subjected to man's authority. That's the interrelational order that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians, and it's also in Ephesians that we talked about. So the thing to, to keep in mind here is that our culture likes to put value on a person's role. God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. Roles, according to God, do not define a value of a person. If they did, then we would have to say then Jesus, the Son, has less value than God the Father because Jesus submits to God the Father. But according to the Scriptures, we know that the Son is co-equal with the Father, and so is the Spirit co-equal to Jesus and the Father. And so too men and women are co-equal. The example would be a quarterback, the football team. He gets in the huddle, he calls a play, he gets to the line, his other ten men are on that line, he barks out the signals, and each one of those men on that line are in submission to what he is actually saying on that line. He's the authority, he calls the shots every play. But that doesn't make him more valuable than the other ten men because he couldn't do his role if he didn't have blockers, if he didn't have receivers, if he didn't have halfbacks, fullbacks, he would not be able to fulfill his role to march his team down the field to score a touchdown. So it is with men and women, husbands and wives. Each have a different role according to how God created them, but that doesn't make the wife any less value than the husband just because God has placed the husband as the head of his wife. Like the quarterback, Someone has to call the shots, but just like a quarterback would be not too smart if he didn't ask his other 10 men who are on that field what play might work the best next time they line up, it's the same way as, as a husband and wife. A husband would not be too smart if he didn't ask his wife, what's the next play in life? How should we play this out? And so the problem really in a husband and wife relationship is when the man Is not in subjection to Christ. But when the man doesn't take his orders from Christ, who is the authority over him, it's not long before his leadership skills start to diminish. And of course, the wife's trust in his leadership skills actually pulled away too. And so it's the same way in in, in regards to a, a quarterback, right? If he's not listening to his authority, the coach, then it's not very long before his leadership skills are diminishing. The team is not trusting him, and the whole team suffers as a result of the quarterback not listening to his authority to coach. And that's exactly what happens in regards to a relationship with husband and wife. It breaks down their roles as husband and wife, and it starts to reverse. When a wife sees that her husband is not leading the way he should, not getting the marching orders from Christ, then she starts to take his role. And you start to re- reverse the roles, and the family suffers from it. And of course, uh, society suffers as well. So to answer this question, why should I live by the biblical mandate as a wife to allow my husband to be the spiritual head of the home or marriage? Because it's the best interest of both the husband and the wife to fulfill God's given role. So... If the husband is in submission to Christ, there is something actually very attractive to the woman. When she knows that her husband is submitting and Christ is the authority over him, and it's very attractive to her. And the same thing goes with a with man. Uh, the woman looks very attractive when she is fulfilling her role that God has given her to submit under his leadership, because that's really how God has created us in our relational order.
0: Thank you. Next question. Do people who commit suicide go to heaven or hell? This is a commonly asked question, and probably you already have an answer in your mind before I even answer it. But let me ask you the question in another way to get you to think about principles that you might know in Scripture that would apply this. Okay? So let me ask this question another way. Does the method of a person's death determine their eternity? Does the mode or way a person dies, does that determine where they end up? Yes or no? No. Okay, so you answered your own question, okay? Some people ask this question because they think suicide is the unforgivable sin, um, the unpardonable sin, but that is not the case I preached an entire sermon on what the unforgivable or unpardonable sin is, and it's not this. If you want to know what that is, you can go to our website. It's under our our parable series that I called Legends of the Kingdom, and it's the very first sermon in that series. It talks all about what the unforgivable sin is, but suicide is not the unpardonable, unforgivable sin. Another reason people ask this question is because it is a, a terrible, evil Sin that is left unconfessed. And I agree with that. It is wrong because you are essentially usurping God's authority and determining when death happens. But I want you to think through principles that we've already discussed so far in this series because principles that we've already discussed apply to this area of unconfessed sin and its result of eternity. Remember, principle number one salvation comes from belief in the biblical Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's where salvation comes from, and that's Acts 16, 30, and 31. That's where salvation comes from. And once you have the salvation, it's free. You didn't pay anything for it. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, second principle. Salvation is free. You didn't, you didn't pay anything for it. Jesus did. It's not that it, it's cheap, but you didn't pay for it. Jesus Christ did, When he died on the cross, but also you didn't contribute to it. You didn't do anything to get the salvation. And equally, you can't do anything to undo the salvation because if you could, that would be a works based salvation. Salvation is free, it's not works based, it's free. But thirdly, we've already talked about this one too, salvation is secure. Once you are genuinely saved, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, as Pastor Chuck has already described, the Holy Spirit comes and seals that. Seal is a legit word. Sealed. You you can't unseal a seal. It's done. And so once the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you, you are now sealed in that salvation. You cannot climb out of the hands of God. That's 1 Peter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. So with those three principles, salvation comes from belief in the biblical Jesus it's free. It's secure. So now let's apply that to this particular topic of, of suicide. A person who was genuinely saved, they will go to heaven no matter how they die because the mode of death does not determine our eternity. Other things do. Our belief in a Savior does. and Jesus' free gift of grace and mercy, uh, the, the security that comes from that. That's what determines our, our eternity. Not the mode of death. And also a person who has not put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they will not go to heaven, no matter how they die, because they have not put their faith and trust in the biblical Jesus, even though it was free for them. They were not sealed by the Holy Spirit, and so they don't get to have that in eternity. I know that this is a hard answer, particularly for people who have teenagers. You know, you don't want to give anybody you know ammunition or permission to go do something terrible like this. And so we want to redo God's Word and wield it for good, you know, want to keep people from doing something that's wrong, but we can't do that to Scripture. We can't say something that that isn't true. We've had a lot of questions, Pastor Chuck and I, that you've texted in about this idea of eternal security. Uh, and I get that that's a hard concept, and I can't even describe it completely that we are eternally secure, but some of your questions have been in this range of how could someone live a, a life honoring to Jesus their entire life, they're saved young, live a life honoring to Jesus, sacrificial to Jesus and other people, and uh, they get to go to heaven, and then someone who lives a completely terrible life, and yet on their deathbed, they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, how is it even fair that they also get the same heaven? How, how is that fair it's not. But if we want to talk about fair and eternity, none of us would be there. You know, the wages of sin is death and all have sinned. (laughs) Get away from that. Well, the only way to get away from that is the, the grace. Grace is unfair. Mercy is unfair, which allows us eternity into heaven. And so that's why there are parables in the Bible that Jesus tells about everybody crossing the finish line at the same time, a tie. We, we all get heaven. Now, in heaven, there are rewards, and maybe that'll balance things out in your mind. I don't know. I don't even know what those rewards are. I don't know how that even works. Um, but to specifically answer that question, the mode of death does not determine our eternity. That's a, a biblical idea, a biblical principle, and it's based on salvation comes from belief in Jesus Christ of the Bible. It's free, it's God's grace, and it's secure no matter, no matter unconfessed sin. Now, that's obviously not healthy spiritually to have unconfessed sin, but that doesn't take away the salvation that was free in the first place, all right? Pastor, you get the next one. When Christ comes to gather all the believers at the rapture, what happens to those who have not heard the gospel? Wow,
1: well, just a, you talking about that one there, there's probably going be a little overlap um, from this question. I like this question. It's a great one. If I understand it correctly, let me just kind of give you the long version of this question so we kind of know exactly where this is going. What happens to people um, on this planet Earth who have never heard the gospel message of Jesus Christ during their lifetime and die and are still alive when... Jesus comes back for the rapture to take his church, all believers, back up into heaven before the tribulation. And so that's really the question. First of all, let me reference and paraphrase a couple of verses that give us clear understanding of the true heart of God and his love that he has for mankind. First Timothy two 3, 4. I'm paraphrasing this. God's heart for man is that he has provided the only way to him as through Jesus, the son's ransom, and this way is open to all. 2 Peter 3, 9, God's heart is, it's patient toward all. That means everyone. Wishing none to perish, that all would accept his perfect plan of repentance through his son. Ezekiel eighteen twenty three. God's heart is is he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he wishes they would turn from their evil ways and live eternally with him. In Matthew 23:37, Jesus even gives us this real live picture of God's loving and protective nature toward his people, having this real desire to actually gather up his people like a mother hen under the, the wings, like baby chicks. With that clear picture of the heart of God, let me just set up the answer to this question by quoting one set of verses that I'm just going to reference. Romans 1, 18 and 20. I'm going to read this scripture, and then I'm going to reference a couple other scriptures. Romans 1:18 through 20. Okay. So there's three other reference scriptures. I'm just going to say them and then we're going to talk a little bit about this verse that I just read and those those references. Job 12:7 through 9, Psalm 19:1 through 4 and Jeremiah 5:21 through 25. So according to the verse I just read and the, the ones I'm referencing here that even if the good news of Jesus had not been proclaimed verbally to a group of people, a a community of people, what these verses are saying, that they have no excuse. They, They haven't heard about Jesus, but they have no excuse, and they're not exempt from judgment. For because that which is known about God is evident within them. Which means that God has given each and every person a conscience that's sensitive at first, and then we make it calloused, just by what, some of the things that we do. But we have a conscience that thrives and calls for God. And creation itself is what actually speaks to each man's conscience and that it clearly should see God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature. Creation itself is man's teacher. The hand of God has created everything. And in that psalm that I referenced, nineteen one through 4, David says that creation tells, declares, speaks, and reveals the knowledge of God. Creation is the actual utterance that God is speaking of himself that reaches to the ends of the world. So, in other words, then, uh, God's creation, together with sensitive conscience God's given each person, should result in a man humbling himself before a righteous and powerful God— acknowledging him in his humble position before God. In Jeremiah 5, that reference I mentioned also gives the problem. The problem is that man doesn't always hear that voice of God. He doesn't hear that it being declared around the world since the beginning of time and creation. He can't pick up on it because he doesn't fear him, because he doesn't tremble at his presence, and that some of our fools because they actually can't hear or see what God has clearly put before them, because they have stubborn and rebellious hearts. So they have turned away from the things that God has clearly put before them because they are satisfied in their sin over God. That's pretty much it. And so with that said, we also have to remember that God's judgment is just. It is just. Psalm 89 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. With all that said, talked about God's heart, there's no excuse, and that God's judgment is just. Let's answer the question, what happens to those who do not know Jesus, who have not been introduced to him when Christ comes back to the rapture of this church? When Jesus comes down out of heaven, that's the rapture. He raptures up his bride, the church. He will take all those who are alive at that time up to heaven, all those who died in Christ up to heaven at that time, 1 Thessalonians four sixteen and 18, leaving on earth all those who are alive in that generation who either didn't know or have rejected Christ, and they will then go into the seven-year tribulation here on earth. Now, what's interesting is what happens during that seven-year tribulation. It really shows God's mercy, because during that seven-year tribulation, he finds all kinds of ways to get the gospel out. Um, In Revelation 11.3, he does it by two witnesses. In Revelation 7:3-4, 144,000 Jewish witnesses throughout the whole world getting the gospel out. And then his last-ditch effort toward the latter part of the tribulation, the seven-year time, God will use an angel to supernaturally proclaim the gospel from the four corners of, of the earth by circling the earth, Revelations 14, 6, and 7. So God does everything possible for those who are left during the tribulation to hear the actual gospel and have a chance to respond. However, those that are still alive at the end of the tribulation who have rejected God, without a doubt they've actually heard the gospel. They had to have heard it. But if they're alive and they still have rejected it, immediately they're killed, their souls are cast into hell. Of those in hell before the tribulation who have died throughout history and then those together now who have been put into hell after the tribulation, whether it's a pre-tribulation or post-tribulation, they will have a final judgment. That's called the Great White Throne Judgment. And that's after the thousand-year millennium when Christ comes to set up his kingdom here on earth. And that's Revelation 20, 11 through 15. I, I had to kind of paint this full picture of Scripture concerning non-believers' fate and their opportunities to, to actually believe in God and put their faith in his Son. For we have A world of (laughs) non-believers, we do, who have rejected God based on a lie. And the lie is that if God actually is a loving God, he will never send anyone to eternal judgment. I know that lie because I actually lived it for my first 25 years. I believed it. But the fact is that all of us, as Pastor Nathan already said, we all deserve hell. And God would be justified, he'd be just, by sending us all to hell. But praise God, he didn't. <laughs> praise God to his glory that he provided a way out. His, his grace through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we all have that chance to be reconciled through Christ. Praise him.
0: It's 8 o'clock straight up. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, I thank you so much for you sending your son. I'm glad that we could we can pull that out of your scripture. At any point, we see your work through your son. And that we praise you. We praise you that we have the hope of eternity in heaven, even though uh, we don't deserve it, only because of your grace and mercy. And because of that, then uh, we want to live lives honoring to you, not to earn that salvation, but because we want to honor you in who we are. And so, God, I pray that your word tonight would help us to live lives honoring to you this week. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.